The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Yes, Father. Me too. We, we had a bit of a hiatus last week, right? That's right. As I found myself in an area that uh, was not, uh, shall we say, uh, communication friendly. So, uh, but uh, apologize for that, and thank everyone for their patience. But we're I'm glad we're back here now. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, this area certainly is communication friendly, Father. So, uh, well, guess we could uh, begin tonight as usual with any any prayer requests. Yes, I have quite a few, and actually, I made notes of them. Sure. I, mean, I I continue to ask for prayers for Paul Riley and his family, his dear wife Amy, and the children. Uh, who are all, uh, you know, praying uh, incessantly for their dad's recovery from the tragic accident that uh, injured him so severely. Please pray for Paul, his family, and his friends. They're all suffering with him. Uh, pray for Dr. David Hofrichter, who we pray is recovering from surgery. He's had a tough road for years now. And we pray that this will finally give him relief. And, of course, his dear wife, Carol, and, and his children, too. Uh, pray for Jim Sank and Ray Sisicki. Pray for Donna King and Cliff Hogan. For uh, Jim and, and Pat Tootie. For Bernie Kunkel and Monica Condit. Please keep Monica and her family in your prayers as she deals with resurgent cancer. It's a valiant soul there. And uh, there are so many others uh, we've been asked to pray for. And I'll probably have their names for you next time, but I, I just want you to please uh, keep them in your prayers. All of those whose names are given on the Immaculate Heart Mary prayer list, they've requested our prayers, and uh, we we should remember them daily. Just uh, remember all of those who are who are enclosed in Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, because Our Lady never forgets. She has a motherly love, a motherly heart, a mother heart. After this Mother's Day, we just celebrated, so... Hers is the greatest heart of all mothers. So, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, you know, Tom, I talked about that love of, of Our Lady being so unique because she's the only one who can love our Lord as a mother loves a child. There's a very unique love there of a mother for a child. And uh, even the cherubim and the seraphim cannot love the Son of God as their own child. Only the Blessed Mother can. And, uh, you know, it, it helps us to remember also that the love she has for the Son of God is kind of a parallel of the love of the Father for the Son. Because the Father, God Almighty, the Father, begets his Son. And we talk about that relationship between the Father and the Son in God as a true begetting, right? A generation of a Son. And uh, when the Blessed Mother then um, 
became the, the mother of our Lord according to the flesh, and she gave the Son of God his humanity, she also has a relationship with him. That the, the only thing that is comparable to that anywhere is the fatherhood of Almighty God for his Son, the Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Our Lady's love is not only unique, but it has a very close affinity as a mother to child, as father to son in the, in the Blessed Trinity. Um, now, obviously, one is an infinite love. Our Lady's love, as great as it is, cannot be infinite. She cannot love infinitely because she's a creature. But she does love with all of her powers of loving. So they are completely devoted to that love of her divine Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there really is a, a very close affinity between the love of this mother uh, for her son and the Father, God the Father, and again, the Son whom he begot by the, uh, you know, as, as his divine word, as, as you might say, his perfect self-expression. So, um, you know, that might help explain why our Lady's relationship with Almighty God transcends even that of the angels. And their, their relationship of, of love to the Father, because Our Lady's love is a unique love, which in some ways even really does transcend the love of the greatest angels for Almighty God. Wow. Good for us to remember. That's very beautiful, Father. Thank you. What would you say would be the, uh, the practical results of that of that idea what should we do after considering that thought well ultimately it should make us just all the more ad admire we should make us admire almighty god and his divine power in um in sharing the the power of loving i mean he created us with intelligence to know the truth himself ultimately and to love goodness himself ultimately and to enjoy beauty himself ultimately right and uh, here he has taken a human creature who, right, in terms of, shall we say, the, uh, the social status and all the rest of, of human creatures, she, the Blessed Mother, a maiden in uh, a little town, Nazareth, you know, in a little corner of the world, uh, Galilee, she might not have been from any earthly, worldly management uh, in history, uh, any, uh, any significance whatsoever. And God has elevated her by her sheer humility and her absolute devotion to his will, to fulfilling God's will, to, uh, you know, a, a status in heaven above, above the angels, uh, such that she really is not only the queen of angels and saints, she's the queen of God. I mean, he, in the sense, has crowned her his own queen, you know, as a king would, would, would receive his own, choose his own queen. So God has chosen her to have that, that place in heaven in eternity. And uh, she has a relationship with God which is altogether unique. And it should make us marvel at God's providence because God did that not only for her, but God did that for us too. I mean, and he, he gave her to us, having raised her to that, status, right, um, before the heavenly host, he has given her to us as, as, a, as a mother, spiritual mother. That should give us an enormous amount of confidence 
in the in the providence of God, a great admiration for it, and and should believe is kind of speechlessly filled with with a sense of worship and and adoration of this divine love which is provided so admirably, so beautifully for us. Uh, we we see Saint Bernadette um, on her on her deathbed repeating. I, I will see her, I will see her, I will see her. And this was the great comfort, because St. Bernadette had seen the Blessed Mother there in Massaviel, and had seen how beautiful she was. And uh, the comfort that St. Bernadette had in her the trials and tribulations of her very, very serious illness and all the pains that she suffered so on, was the prospect of seeing the, this beautiful Blessed Mother again. I mean, it was a great comfort to her. So, um, you know, that should inspire us, too. That should inspire our thought, too, that uh, you know, sometime we shall, by the grace of God, if we are faithful, as we intend to be, hopefully, and uh, God intends us to be, uh, we will see. We will see this Blessed Mother and the God who provided her for us and the God who gave her her beauty uh, to reflect his own. We will see that. St. Paul says, we will see face to face. I will know even as I am known. We have to look forward to that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Especially in our tribulation, we have to look forward to that. Yep. That's great, yeah. Father. Thank you. Um, happy Mother's Day to all of our, our mothers. Yes, indeed. Happy Mother's, Mother's Day to us. Yes. Well, Father, we wanted to um, discuss tonight a um, really great question that we had from one of our, our longtime, very faithful viewers who asked about um, the um, passage in the Gospel from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 18, verse 8, where our Lord asked the apostles, um, maybe rhetorically, when the Son of Man returns, do you think he will find faith on earth? And uh, our, our viewer wanted to know, how, how do you reconcile that, Father? Because our Lord seems to be implying that he will not find faith on earth, but um, at the same time we talk about you know some kind of great restoration uh, of the Church. Um, so what is actually in store for the, the future mm -hmm. of the church? Will there be some kind of great restoration or will the church be uh, kind of eradicated from the face of the earth? Mm -hmm. What will what, what happen? Well, Tom, actually, be behind that question, there's a, there's a lot of controversy right now. There are those who say we're in the, in the end times, that the Antichrist is in the world and his manifestation is impending, and uh, that uh, after three and a half years, of his of his um, of his dominating the earth, he will be vanquished by Christ, who will come to um, put an end to all uh, this foolery <laughs> and to judge the world. Right? But there are those who say no, no, that's not right, um, because um, this is only temporary. They say there will be three days of darkness in which God will purge the earth of the evil, and following that, then will come a period of the reign of Mary. Our Blessed Mother will reign in her uh, over the earth by, by the grace of God. And her love, her love for our Lord will be basically uh, the, the standard which all mankind will adhere to. And uh, like Mary, they in all humility, all the peoples of the world, all the nations of the world will acknowledge the one true God and uh, embrace the one true faith. And, be, and they will be faithful. And this will be the reign of Mary. And then, only after that, and charity grows cold once again, will we face the Antichrist and the end. 
So there's a certain amount of controversy if you look among the conservative Novus Ordo or even, you know, traditional websites, uh, you find that they vary in how they see this happening. Of course, the pivotal question is that reign of Mary, the Blessed Mother did in fact say at Fatima, this will happen and that will happen. I mean, she talked about Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, right? She talked about famines and wars and all kinds of terrible calamities. Um, but she said, in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. And um, so there are those who say, uh, going on that and other, other uh, things that have been revealed, I believe, um, that this situation we're in now is going to be uh, basically overturned, that the, the evil in the world is going to be overturned by the three days of darkness, and then that will herald in the reign of Mary for a period of time. So the Antichrist is not here and will not be here for some time um, until all of that has been com completed. Of course, St. Pius X himself uh, said in his first encyclical on uh, October 4th, uh, 1907, that, uh, or, or I'm sorry, a bigger part in 1903 when he was elected, right? When he was elected, uh, that uh, he feared that the Antichrist might be already in the world. We're beginning to watch the beginning of that period of time St. Paul prophesied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the coming of the Antichrist. So there are different schools of thought on the subject. But uh, in any case, we can actually put that controversy aside for the moment in looking at this uh, passage from St. Luke's Gospel chapter 18. And we can read those words of our Lord uh, when the Son of Man returns to earth to judge, do you think, or what think ye, will he find faith on earth? Okay. Uh, it's clear that is a rhetorical question. Uh, the commentators on the sacred scripture uh, tell us that is a rhetorical question. Uh, Amatura Cornelius Alapide and his uh, great interpreter among us uh, would agree that that is a rhetorical question. The implication is that when the Son of Man does return, whenever that may be, right, uh, whatever school of thought you believe in, uh, as far as these progressions um, of history, that nonetheless at that time when our Lord returns, it will be because faith has been uh, driven from the face of the earth. And our Lord, I think, speaks about upon the earth, upon the face of the earth, which you know, we know that the faith will never die. We know that the church will never die. We know that there will always be those who are faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. Always hold the true faith. Always hold to the true worship of God. And um, we know that, that when our Lord asked that question, do you think men will find faith, that Christ will find faith on earth when he comes? It does not mean that everyone will have abandoned the faith and the church will have died. That cannot mean that. Our Lord himself said, I will be with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. Um, so, uh, what we might well interpret from that is that there will be so few who remain faithful and they will be so terribly persecuted that they will be underground and that the worship of God will have to go into hiding. Now, that might be rather alarming to people and I could understand why, Nonetheless, that's where the church was 
in its in its earliest years. Um, the church, uh, I mean, the Catholic Church had no churches of its own uh, to begin with. Um, when our Lord died on the cross, when He rose from the dead, when He ascended into heaven, there were no Catholic churches on the face of the earth. Um, they only came to be gradually over many years, and um, even the first masses were offered in private homes of the Christians, um, as in the case of Senator Pudens, where St. Peter offered Mass in Rome, or in the catacombs, right? Underground. And so, again, um, these were sequestered, they were limited, uh, even after the Church gained her liberty. Even at that, uh, the prescription was for that the catechumens who were not baptized could not stay for the Mass of the Faithful, the consecration and the communion. Uh, so we might see in that kind of an image of what the, the circumstances the Church will, will encounter in the last days of the world before Christ comes, uh, that will actually mirror the situation that confronted the Church in her earliest days with the handful of truly devoted followers heroically holding to the faith and loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and relying only on Him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the world, almost as though uh, having buried our Lord once again after having successfully crucified Him and killed Him, the world will be partying and celebrating over the, the, the corpse as they, as they imagine it, the corpse of the church, which they have, a, they finally overcame him. They finally overcame him. They finally got him stuck back in the tomb to stay once and for all. And of course, that's exactly the, the moment for the resurrection, right? It was then and it will be now, or it will be in the future. So I guess it shouldn't surprise us that our Lord would say that the end state of the church will mirror the beginning state of the church and even the life of our Lord, as he was born in obscurity, right? It was thought that he had been killed in Bethlehem. And the end of our Lord's life, when he was carried to the tomb, the great stone rolled over the mouth of the tomb, and they thought, well, that's it. We've got the guard here. That's the end of that. That's how mankind will think at that time. How, how do we know, Father, that the uh, church will never actually die or, or be eradicated? I mean, if, if the church mirrors the life of our Lord, our Lord actually did die, did he not? Well, yes, he did die, but you have to remember that the human soul of our Lord left the body. That, that was his death, right? The human soul left the body. The soul is animated by the body. But our Lord Jesus Christ is not only man, but he is God. And the theologians tell us, and it's something that we need to ponder over, is that the divinity did not leave the soul of Christ, nor the body of Christ. That our Lord's divinity as the Son of God remained with the body and the soul of Christ. And so when the soul of Christ descended into hell to preach the gospel to the dead, as St. Peter says, in other words, to announce the redemption having been accomplished to the souls in limbo, uh, you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, you had David, you had Isaiah and Ezekiel, and so on, all of the just souls of the Old Testament. Uh, and he, our Lord announced to them, they had been awaiting this moment, you know. The divine person of the Son of God was present there and addressed them through the, the soul of Jesus Christ, 
the human soul of Jesus Christ, announcing the resurrection. But the very body of Christ lying in the tomb during that time, still the divine presence of the Son of God, it was still his body. And they could drive his soul out by, by putting him to death. Uh, but they could not drive the divinity out of that body of Christ. And it was actually the, the divine, the power of the divine person who remained in the body of Christ, the power of the divine person in the soul of Christ. I mean, the resurrection was, you know, that's what, that's what brought about the resurrection. You know, The power of God the Father, you know, by whose power the God the Son was sent here as man, um, uh, brought the soul the human soul of Christ uh, and the body, the human body of Christ together, that his divinity never parted from him, either body or soul. So even the body of Christ, I mean, lying in the, in the tomb, was worthy of adoration as the Son of God. He never stopped being the Son of God. Yeah. Well, Father, what, what do you, you understand? I, I think so, Father. I, think yeah. so. I don't know but, that anyone really understands. I mean, it's but it's, it's, it's a it's, mystery. But the incarnation itself is a mystery. Yeah, it's it's hard to um, I, I don't know co- comprehend what what exactly that that means of having the the divinity still. Well, I mean, you, you ask about the, the church dying, and you say Christ died, and he yeah. did die. Yeah. But you have to remember, the divine power which was in in Christ, both his body and his soul, remained, mm-hmm. and so it is with the church that it may appear that the church has been just utter, utterly, you know, put to death and, and died. Yeah. But that divine power cannot die. Yeah. The divine power which Christ invested in the church, which is truly his mystical body, that cannot, that cannot die. And uh, it, 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 the, the resurrection is a, is a certainty. Mm-hmm. By those who get so nervous about the situation, the way things are, and think, oh my goodness, you know, if, if they're right, the church is over, the church is finished, you know. Uh, people say, oh, if those Sedebicantists are right, then the church is finished. And the Sedebicantists say, well, if those Sedeplatists, or whatever you want to call them, if they're right, then the church is finished. You say, well, the church is never finished. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to have faith that the church is a divine institution. Um, you know, uh, humanly speaking, yeah, they can try to kill the church in the fact as they had killed killed our Lord, and our Lord really died. And the church may really undergo a, a death, you know, uh, in the strict sense of the word, but not a death insofar as that the church has no life, you know, because the divine life must remain there, as it did with our Lord Jesus Christ. The divine life cannot be killed. And where you find the divine life in Christ and in the church, it cannot be killed. It is immortal. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, if we are um, following this, following along, and, and uh, you know, mirroring the, the life of our Lord and His passion and death, what what can uh, what can Catholics do today to make sure that they don't um, they don't follow in the footsteps of, of the apostles who who abandoned our, our Lord during His during His passion and during his death, I think it's so easy for us to um, kind of sit back and, and criticize the, the apostles and think that we would have done so much better, we would have been so much more brave. But um, if we're actually mirroring that, if we're actually going, going to be placed in that same or similar situation soon, what can we do to, to prepare? Well, we have something the apostles didn't have. We have the resurrection. We have the benefit 
of saying them by faith, we're saying them go through all of that. Struggle, doubt, even deny. And then be to have all of their doubts and all of their fears overcome by the fact of the resurrection. And the fact of the resurrection did overcome all of the trauma and all the rest that they experienced, all of the doubts and anxieties and so on. The fact of the resurrection eventually just overcame all of that in them. And they went out, cowards as they were that night that they fled from our Lord, for, for which they certainly felt, they certainly, certainly felt that afterwards. Um, uh, they actually went out, and on the basis of the the fact of the resurrection, they preached the gospel to all nations, and they died. St. John himself was willing to die, and the, the attempting to, to martyr him, as you know, in the boiling oil at the Latin gate outside of Rome by Emperor Domitian, he was willing also to undergo that, that sacrifice of martyrdom. God did not allow him to, but the fact is they were all ready to give their lives in martyrdom for our Lord on the basis of the power of the resurrection that, as I say, overcame all of their doubts and concerns. So, so we have the benefit of seeing that happen, having happened. And uh, then what developed from that? Seeing the history of the church, as we know it, not the falsified history put out by her enemies, um, but the real history of the church, we have the, the example of the many, many saints, and so we have all of that. So when the time comes again that the church has to go through the great apostasy and has to go through this, these times of, of persecution, even by the Antichrist, the greatest deceiver in the history of mankind, we will have the benefit of what the apostles went through and the power of the resurrection and its influence over them to guide us and to uh, bolster our faith. So that having, being mindful of that, no matter what we uh, have to face, I mean, no matter how horrible it may be, our faith can be invincible. It can be unshakable. So when you go to the pages of the scriptures and you turn to the New Testament, you turn to St. Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians, and you go to chapter 2, you find there that St. Paul talks about the elect, the eclectoi, who are the chosen souls of God, whose faith will be unshakable, that even the greatest deceiver in the history of mankind, who has the power of Satan behind him, will not be able to shake their faith. And we just have to hope and pray that that's us. The key, St. Paul talks about those who will be deceived. He says they will be given the, to, over to the operation of error because they did not love the truth. Because they did not love the truth. That's the key. So it's actually the love of the truth that is going to uh, give us a kind of immunity to the lies of the Antichrist. So we will see right through them and not be deceived by them. The key is to love the truth and to try to convey a love for the truth to our children so that they will be armed. What did our Lord say to Pilate? Right? Thou art a king then, our Pilate says. And our Lord said, 
Thou sayest it, for this was I born, and for this I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth heareth my voice. And so it will be at the end, that those who are of the truth and those who love the truth, their, their faith will be unshakable, invincible. Even the powers of hell, uh, concentrating and focused on them, will not be able to break their faith. How, how can someone grow in their love for the truth and increase their faith? Pray for it. <laughs> They just, they just have to pray for you. Know, you know what love does, Tom? Look, uh, you have a wife, right? She's really a saint, right? She's a saintly woman, right? She puts up with you and many other things, right? Thanks. Which is no, it's an easy task, obviously. <laughs> you know, a blessed task. But the point is, uh, you know, if I asked you right now, well, you love her, are you satisfied with how you, you love her enough? I mean, would you say, eh, I love her enough. I don't, I don't need to love her anymore. That I do. Uh, well, you wouldn't do that because that's not what love does. Love wants to grow, right? It's it's if there's real love somewhere. You know, love is never re real. Love is never really satisfied with itself. Saying, "Oh, I love them enough. That's all I need to love them." Then you begin to realize, well, men maybe they don't love them at all. Maybe that's not love in the first place. And it's true, especially of our love for God. If we have a love for God. Real love for God, we cannot be satisfied with it and say, I love God enough. I mean, how much is enough to love infinite goodness, right? It's impossible to love God enough. And so when our Lord tells us we must love the Lord our God with our whole heart and our whole mind and our whole strength, uh, our whole will, um, you know, our, our Lord is telling us that we can't be satisfied uh, with loving God only somewhat, even, even, by the way, with loving him enough to keep the commandments, because, again, I mean, loving God enough just to keep the commandments might be enough to die in the state of grace and to save your soul. But that doesn't mean you love God with perfect love. It just means you love him more than anything else, so that, given the choice, as every temptation does, you will always choose your love for God because you love God more than anything else. Uh, that's the kind of love that is necessary to keep a soul out of mortal sin and in the state of sanctifying grace. So whenever there's a choice to be made, you always choose your love for God because you love him most of all. But that's not the same as loving him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, with all of your power of loving. That's the love that the saints have in heaven. Right? Our Lord himself told us this when the young man came to him and said, Master, what must I do to have everlasting life? And our Lord said, well, keep the commandments. And then the young man said, well, I've done that from my childhood. And our Lord said, well, if you want to be perfect, then leave all things and come follow me, which is another way of saying, you know, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and it gives everything. And um, so there's a difference between what is necessary to save your soul, a fidelity that is born of loving God most of all, more than any other creature, and a perfection that comes from having a perfect love for God, so that all your powers of loving are directed to God. And, um, you know, we have to pray for that and sacrifice for that and ask God for that kind of love for Him, so that we're not just um, deceiving ourselves and thinking, I love God, if I have the attitude, well, I love Him enough, that's not 
That's not what love does. That's not real love. And somebody who thinks like that should be very worried. If he thinks to himself, I love God all I really want to. I love God enough. They say, well, you mean you love God enough as far as he's concerned? And they say, well, no, I love God enough as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned, I love God enough. You know, uh, That is very insulting to God. How could it not be, right? If you said to your wife, Hannah, if you said, you know, Hannah, I love you enough, you know, and I'm okay with that, you know, I'm not concerned about loving you any more than I do, would she think, oh, gee, thank you, John. that's wonderful, I'm so flattered by that, or would she find it kind of insulting, right? Well, you know the answer to that question, right? Uh, because we know that that's not what love really does. So, so in any case, um, when we when we want to love the truth, which is just another way of saying we love our Lord and Almighty God, we can never be satisfied with loving Him enough. We must always be praying to love Him more, be more faithful, and make progress. Um, again, you ask for a formula to be you know steeled and grounded enough to face whatever the powers of hell can throw at us. And there it is, right? St. Paul tells us, love the truth, love our Lord, and finally, aspire, aspire to love him with all of your power of loving. Never be satisfied with anything less than that. Okay. That sound too abstract? No, Father, that's great. Oh, that's great, okay. thank you. Just wondering. No, that's great, thank you. Um, we did have another topic that we, uh, we wanted to talk about, and uh, we've had some of our viewers ask about this idea of, of uh, so-called manifesting. Oh, um, maybe I'll, I'll let you give the technical definition of it, but I know some years ago there was a famous, uh, very popular book titled The Secrets, I believe, that oh. was published that talked about this idea of, uh, of manifesting, and it's apparently very, very popular today. Um, popular, it's um, a lot of internet pages are, are dedicated to this, uh, this idea. So could did, you explain? Did you read the book? I have not had the book, no. I haven't either. No, no. But could you, could you explain this idea of manifesting, what it is, and, and uh, what Catholics should, mm -hmm. they should think about manifesting? Well, we, we recently had a young professional woman, uh, very accomplished, already, uh, inquire about it, because evidently she's wandering into it. She's from New York, and um, evidently she, she's hearing more and more about this from coworkers and others, and it is becoming more and more of a popular idea. And uh, so I, I actually did look up, you know, manifesting to see, well, what, what does this mean? Because, it's, uh, uh, you know, there are no real new ideas. They just take on different names. You know? <laughs> People reinvent the names and then say, oh, look what I discovered. Same, same idea. Repeated not only throughout the, the decades, but even the centuries and even the millennia. Same ideas. So, uh, you know, rather than give you uh, my own personal uh, manifestation of what manifestation is. Maybe I can cite some of these, some of the, the statements made on these manifestation websites. Um, so I, I read here, essentially manifestation is bringing something tangible into your life through attraction and belief. That is, if you think it, it will come. However, there is more to manifestation than willpower and positive thinking as Angelina Lombardo, the author of Spiritual Entrepreneur, says, <laughs> manifesting is making everything you want to feel and experience a reality. 
via your thoughts, actions, beliefs, and emotions. So in your, in your thoughts, you're bringing together your beliefs, your emotions, and uh, according to this entrepreneur, you're, you're um, kind of marshalling your actions then to apply yourself to, as she says, uh, make everything you want to feel and experience a reality, right? Now, that's kind of a nice thought, that's right? Nice thought. And um, so it's, they go on here, and the, the Oprah Daily website, Oprah, you know, great uh, guru of you know, self-awareness, helping you live the life you want is a big part of Oprah, Oprah Daily's and Oprah's goals. The insider exclusive Life You Want classes and events teach our community of readers how to live intentionally from creating a vision board, creating a vision board to learning forgiveness. Uh, one other way to live your best life, manifest it. Okay? Manifestation or the laws of attraction. Notice they keep repeating that to an extent, laws of attraction may be a concept you're familiar with. The process was the focus of a 2006 best-selling book, The Secret, which sold more than 30 million copies, and it's something that thought leaders, including Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, Gabriel Bernstein, Ianla Vincent, and Oprah have spoken about, uh, for the record, they all agree that you really can manifest things. Keep in mind, it doesn't happen overnight. Although manifesting is about turning your dreams into reality, it does require you take proactive steps toward whatever it is you desire. You shouldn't, happen to, you shouldn't expect it to happen instantly. But even though it's a lengthy process, that time is a small price to pay for a hopefully profound impact on your life. So some, some of these who um, uh, advocate this manifestation do caution you. You can't just will it into existence, okay? They say that's, that's a mistake. And so they criticize the critics of manifestation who say that, well, manifestation is just a form of wishful thinking, and by thinking about it, you can make it happen. It, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, the Watterson cartoon, um, uh, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, where Calvin comes out on the on the back porch, he's all dressed up. It's a kid, you know. You know the character. He's all dressed up in his winter gear, and he's holding a sled under his arm. And he's standing on the back porch. And he looks up to the sky. He's all ready to go sledding, but there's no snow. So he stands there and he says, "All right, snow." And he he stands there expectantly, looking, and there's no snow. So he yells louder, "Snow! Come on, snow!" He looks up expectantly. There's no snow. He does a war dance, right? He's hopping around, screaming, snow, 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 snow. Stops, looks up, there's no snow. The last frame shows him going off. He's really steaming mad, and he has, he's rising off of his head, and he's, his head is down, and he looks, there's a grim look, he says, I think I'll become an atheist. And uh, I think Watterson was trying to say, well, this is, you know, the attitude of atheists. They didn't get their way, so... Um, this is their default mode to, you know, become an atheist. They're going to punish God, you know, that he didn't do their will. And so we're warned by some, no, it's not a matter of just looking up at the sky and yelling snow and expecting it to snow. 
that the the manifesting starts in yourself with um, focusing your thoughts on what you want. Okay, you have to focus your thoughts on what you want. And then you have to line up your emotions with that, and uh, all your feelings have to be lined up with that. And it's as though then you have to apply that to what you do. But the law of attraction basically comes down to that if you do that, then you will attract all the good. And all of that will come to you, you know. So when you get right down to it, uh, if it's just a matter of saying, okay, you know, think about what you want to accomplish first, map out a plan, and then actually apply yourself to taking the necessary practical steps to accomplish that good thing. That's nothing new. I don't care whether they call it manifesting or whatever they call it. I mean, that's just common sense, basically, right? Mankind has not discovered that uh, in the last uh, whatever years. And uh, so, but the thing is, marketing that as though it's something new and different is almost like Gnosticism saying, oh, look, we have the secret truth. And if you learn the secret, now you can be successful too. But, you know, you can be illuminated and you'll be one of the Illuminati and you will know the secret reality of truth of all success and uh, apply that and you are guaranteed success. I mean, that's basically a form of Gnosticism, the ancient Gnosticism, of having this hidden knowledge revealed only to the elite, right? Mm -hmm. The spiritual ones now who really understand the secret of the universe. But uh, the fact is, this idea that you apply your will and make the world conform to what you want and make the world give you what you want is a very, very old formula. Um, you have philosophies, nihilism, voluntarism, the, the preeminence of the will over the intelligence where you you force your will upon reality, you force your will upon the world, you force your will upon others, uh, you become like the Superman of Nietzsche just by enforcing your will. I mean, this is what gave rise to Hitler. And it's, I mean, Hitler's uh, whole vision uh, is summed up in the triumph of the will. Uh, the triumph, there's villains, you know, the triumph of the will, this, 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 you might call it a documentary or whatever propaganda piece that the Nazis produced, the triumph of the will. Uh, the idea that you can somehow uh, use your will to create the reality that you want uh, is very old. The, the idea of existentialism, the philosophy of existentialism, that was, which is what are being imbued, uh, you know, all the minds of our young people are being imbued with this in the college campuses, that you have your own experience, so you have your own world, you have your own reality. And your own reality is yours and yours alone, and that's your world, so you each have your own little world of which you are the center, and you are the god of your own little world. You determine what is true or false for you. You determine what is right or wrong for you, bad or good for you, depending upon whether it makes you happy or makes you sad. Existentialism. You have your own existence, you have your own experience, and that is your world. Each one has his own little world. Each one is the god or goddess of his own little world. Okay, and this is the idea that you use your will to create the world that you want around you. Um, 
magic, Wicca is all about that. Imposing your will. Imposing your will. Now there are those, the Wiccans, who think, I, I have the keys now to, to marshal the forces of the universe to serve my will. Satanists would say they're not Wiccans, and Wiccans would say we're not Satanists. But nonetheless, Satanists have the same basic uh, approach. We can summon the powers of darkness to do our will. We can summon the powers of hell, because they have the powers, and we can bargain with them and get them to serve our will. But in any case, it all comes down to the fact that we can impose our will. One way or another, we can impose our will on the world around us. Uh, as though we are the gods of our own little universe, and we have the power to do this. By the way, both the Wiccans and the Satanists have the same one moral principle, and that is, as long as you don't hurt anyone, do what you want to do. Follow your will. It's all about your will. Uh, so you have magic, you have Wicca, uh, but you know, Tom, we live in it in an era of virtual reality. And our young people have been largely raised in this world of virtual reality. In fact, the, the video games occupy so much of their time and so much of their energy and so much of their interest. Many of these young people, rather, for, for them, reality is the video game. That's their chosen reality. They'd rather live in the video game than in the real world. And, you know, you try to take it away from them, and they'll fight you for it. They want that screen. They live on that screen. That's their life you're taking away from them. It's like their soul is somehow, you know, embedded in that screen. And that they will fight you to the death for it. We've seen that happen when some teachers have tried to take these things away from kids. You know, they're, they're cell phones. And so, uh, you know, our kids these days are being raised on virtual reality. And many of them, uh, unfortunately, it seems... Uh, as far as they're concerned, that's their real life of choice. And they don't like to be drawn out of that and required to do other things like homework, eat meals, <laughs> and other things uh, that require work. They want to live in virtual reality. And what is that? It's a matter of your will, creating your own, your own world, your own reality. Uh, we also have the I am movement. You ever heard of that? The I am movement. It actually uh, goes back to the 1930s. A couple out west uh, claimed to have had visitations from a spirit, uh, Saint, uh, he called himself Saint Germain. And Saint Germain was not a saint. It's not any Saint Germain that you and I would know of. It was a, an adventurer who lived back in the time of even the 1700s, and who frequented the royal courts there. It was a very mysterious individual, uh, very suave, uh, very educated, but nobody knew exactly where he came from. And, uh, but he was clearly into the, into the occult sciences there, a follower of the hermetic, magical you know, lore and so on. And so when this couple claimed to have this visitation, especially the man, the Saint Germain, as he was walking through nature, you know, in the, in the mountains, uh, this uh, Saint Germain said that he was revealing to him the secrets of the ascended masters, that he was an ascended master, okay, and because he had, the Saint Germain had come to the, the hidden knowledge of reality, that he had not died but ascended into the, the other realm, and he had come to reveal to us 
uh, what, what, uh, about these ascended masters. And he mentioned that, well, for example, uh, you have uh, Jesus is an ascended master, according to the Saint Germain, and the I am movement. That Jesus is one of these ascended masters, but so is the Saint Germain character and so many others that they name. Um, and uh, I think it was this, this fellow Ballard who was um, the man who claimed to have this visitation from St. Germain, claimed to have been a reincarnation, what did he say, of Thomas Jefferson, of George Washington? He's a re reincarnation in a former life that this is who he'd been, you know. So this is clearly insanity, okay? In fact, it's regarded as a cult uh, by, uh, you know, those who monitor such things. Of course, we probably would be too by these people. So that doesn't really, but nonetheless, for the longest time, for years before the, the leftists took over, it was regard, regarded as actually a cultic thing. And uh, um, we find in this I am movement, uh, a, a thing called decreeing, where the, the, the adepts of the I am movement actually worship or they, they, they um, take comfort and strength from the inner purple or lavender or violet flame within them. And they can decree reality. They have the power to decree reality. And it is in decreeing that they actually are going to bring about a better world because they can decree things to be as though they have some godlike power. And, uh, but this is what these so-called ascended masters do. By the way, the whole shebang comes from theosophy, goes back to the occult, the theosophy of Madame Blavatsky. And uh, there's actually a book uh, on the subject of Blavatsky's influence, the founder of theosophy, uh, Madame uh, Elena Petrovna Blavatsky. Uh, it's called uh, Madame Blavatsky's Baboon. And it really shows the relationship of the development of modern science and the cult of magic, curiously enough. How there's a relationship, and they both can trace their origins to this theosophical thinking. But I mean, you also had Star Wars, and you had Yoda, you know, lifting the fallen starship out of the, out of the swamp by the power of his mind, you know. So the power of the mind has the power to dominate reality. Neo-paganism is a perfect example of this too. The idea of neo-paganism that we kind of meld with the powers of the world and thus we, we, we share those powers. We actually tap into those powers and we can, by the power of our mind, uh, determine reality. And so manifesting comes our way. But you know where it all starts? In the Garden of Eden. It all started there. All of these things began with the Gnostic idea that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you know good and you know evil, you will be your God. You will become your own God. And uh, this, is the, this is the temptation that is at the root of all these things. Uh, be your own God. Control your own reality. Be the God of your own world. And a contrary to that, 
Our Lord, our Lord Himself teaches. He's not an ascended master. He is the Son of God, made man, died, risen, glorified in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's 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 no mere ascended master. Uh, and this this Son of God has said, "Which of you, by taking thought, can even add to your height one cubit?" Right. By taking thought, who has the power to do anything like that? Dare you try it, right? Our Lord makes it very clear that rather than uh, play this this game of trying to be our own God, constantly failing and creating havoc in the process, our Lord tells us, pray to the true God who created you in his own image and wants to give you a share in his own divine life to make you in his own likeness. And that, by grace, you can become a child of God. Uh, that, is, that takes the humility of Our Lady and all the saints to bow our heads, accept the reality of who we really are, and ask Almighty God to, to help us. That we are not gods. And we do not have the power. And every time we try to pretend that we are gods and can create our own little worlds, according to our own little desires, we not only fail miserably, but we, we basically create hell on earth for ourselves and for others. So uh, I think it's manifesting as something very dangerous. I think it's just the same old story. Uh, use your, your will uh, to create the world you want, to fulfill your dreams. That's what it's all about. And in doing that, you will, by the law of attraction, attract all these good things to yourself. No. Yeah. Almost but like gravity. <laughs> I, uh, I, as you were reading that, I was thinking of uh, the, just, I think it was the gospel for just this last Sunday where our Lord told the apostles that they asked anything uh, of the Father in his name, he would give it to them. So um, I think that that's a that's a pretty powerful thought if someone would uh, meditate on that i mean it's true that's true and well why did our lord did our lord tell the apostles you ask the father in my name and i will ask for you on your behalf no he said actually i say not that i will ask for you but you can ask because the father loves you but why why did our lord say the father loves you because we, they had loved him. Because you have loved me, right? Because you've loved me. And that's the key right there, isn't it? Yeah. Our love for our Lord Jesus Christ is the key to all good things. Yep. It gives us access to the Father himself. Yep. Okay, well, thanks for all that, Father. Um, so who are you voting for for president? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> right? We had an <laughs> announcement this week, right? <laughs> we did, Father. Uh-huh. So... It makes it a tough choice, right? Um, we'll see. We did have lots of viewers ask about Taylor Marshall, Father. And, oh, we did. Uh, we had lots, a lot of viewers asked about that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, you'd probably rather not talk about that right now. That's up to you, Father. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was interesting that he uh, was apparently uh, running on the Christ for King uh, platform, Kingship of Christ. Um, which, which Christ about for King? Uh, or maybe or Christ the King. Maybe it's Christ the King. Oh, okay. Christ the King. He was running out of platform. Christ for King. Let's yeah. vote for Christ for King. <laughs> yeah. I would say, well, that would be maybe a little Christ unusual. The king. But uh, yeah. but if he's he's voting, uh, if he's running on the platform of the kingship of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, right? Yeah. So uh, perhaps uh, we 
need to know a little bit more about this. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to see what the viewers are asking about that. Okay. okay. So uh, well, maybe next program we can address that. Okay. Sounds good. I'm playing that. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, thanks for everything tonight. Appreciate your time. God bless so, you. Tom, thank you. God bless yeah. you too. Thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.